Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now on the budget, Bharat Ramamurthy joins Lisa Bramowitz, Romaine Bostic, and myself here on Bloomberg Surveillance. He is National Economic Council Deputy Director. He's also a member of one of the most distinguished Indian families in America. I'm not going to go through the details because of time, but Bharat, I've been dying to talk to you, no pun intended, in the tragedy of Tamil Nadu. So close to Ceylon, so close to Sri Lanka, your parents came from there. What have you heard? from southern India in the last number of weeks with their pandemic challenge? Well, look, it, uh, it's tragic what's going on in India. My, a lot of my family is still there, especially a lot of my older relatives. So, you know, we're on pins and needles, uh, hoping that they make it through okay. I know that uh, the United States uh, has taken steps uh, to, to assist India in, uh, in dealing with the pandemic, including sending oxygen, which is uh, badly necessary there. Uh, and of course, taking the steps that it did um, on, on the vaccine patents. Uh, and so uh, I, I know the administration is looking at all we can do to help uh, our brothers and sisters abroad, including those in India. I would be pleased to talk to you about this further, but just because of time and the news flow today, we cannot let us go to our economy. Republicans will say this budget will break America, that it's non-doable, the taxes can't be had. Respond. Well, actually, I think that the budget demonstrates that there's a fiscally responsible way of ensuring long-term sustainable economic growth in the United States. Uh, what the budget calls for is a series of investments in our infrastructure, a se series of investments uh, in our families and in four additional years of school, all of which are about uh, improving and increasing the productive capacity of our economy over the long term. Consider the fact that 30 million Americans don't have access to high-speed internet right now. What do you think it does for the economy to go ahead and connect those folks uh, in rural areas, on tribal lands, uh, and elsewhere? Uh, right now, there are 400,000 schools and child care centers that get access to water through lead pipes, even though we know that that poses a danger to the long-term health and safety of our children. The president's plan would call for ripping out and replacing all of those pipes, which not only creates good jobs in the short term, creates uh, long-term uh, success in the economy. And the budget lays out a fiscally responsible way of paying for all of these investments, such that from year 15 onwards, the deficit and the debt actually starts to reduce uh, over the long term. So right. look, I, 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 I'm not going to take a lecture from the same Republicans who voted for a $2 trillion tax cut a few years ago that had no discernible impact on business investment and that exploded the deficit by between $1 and $2 trillion. Brett, there is a question, though, especially if you're counting on this plan to start to pay for itself with respect to economic gains. What role the Federal Reserve plays in keeping borrowing costs low? A lot of people talk to the servicing costs of the U.S. government debt, say it's pretty low because of how low interest rates are. How much are you relying on the Fed to be uh, an active player in keeping rates down? Well, look, the budget assumes a certain level of interest rates over the long term that I think is entirely reasonable. The other part of this is that there are uh, uh, new tax revenue coming from large corporations uh, and from wealthy individuals. You know, in 2018, the effective tax rate paid by U.S. multinational corporations was 8 percent. And compare that to the tax rate that small businesses pay. Compare that to the tax rate that your average middle class family pays. There's clearly capacity for these co uh, companies to pay more in taxes 
to help finance the investments that, by the way, are going to be good for those companies in the long run. Better well, roads and bridges, broadband internet, and so on. This is a win-win scenario. Barat, a lot of people say that higher taxes leads to slower growth. What would you, uh, how would you respond? I just don't think that there is a strong empirical case that the taxes that the president has put on the table, when paired with the investments that he is proposing, uh, are going to have a negative effect on growth. In fact, quite the opposite. Uh, the independent analyses have shown that they produce more economic growth in the short term and the medium term. Uh, they create more jobs and that they also create high quality jobs, which is central to the president's message here. If you listen to his speech yesterday, his main point was that we should start looking at the health of the economy. We should measure the success of our economy based on how working families are doing. Are they getting a wage that allows them to support themselves and their family? Are they able to work at a job with dignity? Do they have choices when they enter the labor market? That's the kind of economy the president wants to build, and that's the kind of economy that we are starting to see emerge right. coming out of this pandemic thanks to the president's actions. So then do you dismiss, I guess, some of the more normal metrics that a lot of people would look at with regards to debt to GDP ratios and uh, deficit financing? Is that not part of the calculus inside the White House? Well, I think it's relevant to look at the interest payments that the United States is going to make as a, as a portion of GDP. If you look at that metric, it's clear that by historical standards, we're actually very well positioned, uh, in part because uh, interest rates are low, as, as you noted. And so uh, from our perspective, this is the right time to make these investments, not only because of that factor, but because we have a unique opportunity uh, as we are emerging from the pandemic mm. to rebuild certain parts of our economy that are going to need rebuilding anyway. And I would just make one, one final point here. Our international competitors aren't holding back. China is making enormous investments in its infrastructure. The EU announced uh, significant investments yeah. in its infrastructure. Japan, uh, there is a race to win the 21st century, the other countries are starting to run. Yeah. Uh, we can't just be sitting on our hands. Barat, the messaging that we've gotten from you and other folks at the White House, it's certainly been compelling. I'm curious, do you guys have a clear ally on Capitol Hill to actually shepherd this through, a powerful ally? Look, I think that there is uh, broad bipartisan support for many of the elements of the plan that we are talking about. First and most importantly, among the public, where the president's plans are polling consistently at 60 or 70 percent. Uh, and I think that many of the elements that the president has put into his plan uh, emerge from existing bipartisan legislation. So, for example, the president has proposed investments in affordable housing. There's broad bipartisan support for expanding tax credits yeah. that promote affordable housing. So uh, <clears throat> if folks are going to be uh, consistent with their previous positions, I think that there should be a lot of bipartisan support for these uh, provisions. Uh, Barat, thank you so much. Barat Ramamurthy, the National Economic Council Deputy Director this morning from the White House. The only one in the room that remembers Anaconda Copper besides me would be Edward Morse. Of course, iconic at Citigroup, Dr. Morse, on oil, on the macroeconomics, the geopolitics of oil. But this morning, we focus on commodities. Ed Morse, it's not in the headlines. It's not above the fold in the New York Times or the Washington Post. But it is China ascendant. We see a yuan making a jump condition to yuan strength. Does it signal, finally, a commodity boom? Well, there is a commodity boom. I don't know whether that's signaling it. I think what's really signaling it is getting out of a recession. We're having the most uh, remarkable recovery following the most remarkable recession given the pandemic. And 
all recoveries are, are commodity intensive in the demand side. And this one is especially so given the depths to which demand had fallen last year. Tell me uh, the inventory rebuild that's out there right now. It's always a mystery in China, but they load it up. What's the dynamic of inventory of copper, iron, and the rest of it in China right now? Inventories are really low, whether you look at iron ore or steel uh, or copper or aluminum. Inventories are really, really low. And the question is, how low can they stay in for how long? And it looks like they will stay low for a long time. We look at the, the scrap market for steel, the scrap market for copper, and they're, they're, they're at record levels. So uh, that's an indication that the inventory of things that go into those products are just not available. Taking a step back, Ed, just to sort of dovetail both of Tom's questions together, there is a question of how much pricing power China still has over the commodities complex. Goldman Sachs coming out and saying that they've lost that power, especially as developed markets, the US, Europe, engage in infrastructure spending. Do you agree? Uh, yes, I do agree. And uh, we've seen it in the Chinese effort to damp down on speculation. Uh, they announced they're going to damp down on speculation. They announced that they're going to damp down on volatility. Prices go down. But then the, the real inventory situation, the real supply demand balance picks up. So China's looking for lower cost, lower priced commodities, and they don't have the power to do that. There's also a question of whether you can have a commodity super cycle, as many people have been calling this, without the participation of oil. And could you have the participation of oil if you have such pushback uh, by investors on likes of Exxon and Shell on becoming a greener operation on adapting to a world trying to flight, uh, fight climate change? What's your view on the outlook for oil given that backdrop? Well, first of all, I agree with the, the view that you can't have a super cycle without oil being part of it. Uh, and all the super cycles we have seen have had massive disruptions in oil supply is a real kicker. Uh, and the reason that is important is that all commodities are energy intensive to a dramatic degree, whether you look at ags or metals, uh, any you pick a commodity and it's going to be energy intensive. Uh, aluminum is particularly energy intensive. Uh, but then we look at the horizon. There are two things that are fighting each other. One is demand is not growing the way it used to grow. Yes. We're in, a re we're in a recovery, and that's a very robust short-term phenomenon. But we look out to 2030, and the big debate is how far away from the historical growth level and demand, how far down is it going to be? And then we look at the supply side, uh, both medium and longer term. We have, uh, we have OPEC countries, Saudi Arabia and the UAE in particular, that are doing what? They're increasing their production capacity. Uh, we have Iran off the market teetering maybe at the, at, the, uh, at, at the cusp of an agreement with the United States. They, they have 1.8 million barrels a day of oil offline that's coming back uh, at some point between now and a year and a half from now. Uh, and then uh, we have oil, oil everywhere. And the price is lower because of the technological revolution that took place with the last super cycle. So I wouldn't say that this is going to be uh, a write-off of oil. Uh, it depends on who has it, where it is, and no matter where you find it, it's going to be fairly easy to produce. So it may not be a write-off of oil here, Ed, but to Lisa's point that uh, she was making in her question as well, with regards to the pressure that is now on a lot of these fossil fuel companies, uh, the idea that they should be pivoting more to renewable energy in some way, or at least kind of hedging their bets with regards to the outlook for oil demand, is it a little premature now for these companies, for those companies that have traditionally sort of relied on fossil fuels and made their profits off of fossil fuels to make that pivot? 
Well, it's not, it's not premature to make the pivot to decarbonize. How that decarbonization works is another matter, but we, we have a massive amount of capital going into carbon capture and sequestration, uh, decarbonizing what's needed and fossil fuels are needed. It is a, uh, it is, it is a, uh, you know, it's wishful thinking to think that the world is going to grow power generation that's non-interruptible based on renewables. That's not going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years. So we're in a world where we have to live with fossil fuels, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the moment, the unfortunate part of the way things are pricing is that uh, oil is pricing below its social contribution. Yeah, definitely. With regards to, though, uh, the, the push into more renewable forms of energy, and particularly uh, all of the talk we have here about EVs, uh, part of the commodity boom that we've seen as of late has been, if I'm not mistaken, directly tied to that, particularly with some of uh, the industrial metals and minerals. Oh, undoubtedly. Uh, the demand for power generation is ubiquitous. You take the three largest economies in the world, the European Union economy, the U.S. and China, uh, they're all moving toward that that EV world in a uh, in an accelerating way, uh, and that requires more power generation. And what do you need to do that? You need batteries. And what do you need to make batteries? Mm. You need an array of metals. You need nickel. You need lithium. You need copper. Yeah. You need aluminum. You need uh, cobalt and manganese. So it's a it's a commodity intensive environment, particularly metal intensive. Right. Yeah, Edward Morris, I got one question, and this comes off our important interview with Andrew Forrest, the giant of Perth in West Australia, on green hydrogen. He's got more money than God, and he's putting it into green hydrogen. We're going to crack ammonia and come up with a free launch here. Do you buy, as a carbon guy, the future of green hydrogen, or is it a myth? Oh, no, it's by no means a myth. The question is, how quickly will we see the cost structure coming down? There are two major cost structures there. One is the cost of renewables. They are going down. Yes. Uh, we're seeing what about the electrolyte? But the electrolyzer is the other one. And uh, and the the big thing that we're waiting for is economies of scale. Uh, we're, we're seeing electrolyzers really made by they're not quite ma and pa companies, but we haven't seen the build out of the economies of scale that are required. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's gonna be there. And then the question is gonna be location, location, location. Where is there going to be the combination of electrolyzer availability and non-interruptible wind, non-interruptible solar? And Australia is very well positioned on, on the renewable side. Edward Morse, thank you so much. With Citigroup, we look forward to speaking to you as we launch through the summer, a commodity uh, boom. There is a question of does this data matter or do we just really have to wait until September, October, November to determine whether this is transitory or not. Stephen Stanley has been parsing through all of this. Amherst Pierpont, chief economist. Does it matter that the PCE deflator, the key indication of inflation that the Federal Reserve looks at, came in higher than expectation at the highest levels on a year-over-year -year basis since the 1990s? Good morning, Lisa. Yeah, I, I think it does matter. I mean, I think you're right. The Fed is going to try to wait it out 
And there's no question if you look at the detail of the April data that most of the uptick in inflation is what the Fed would call temporary factors. Um, but that can get embedded in the uh, in the fabric. And I think you, you rightly highlighted those University of Michigan inflation expectations numbers because it was pretty shocking a couple of weeks ago when the long term inflation expectation number ratcheted up quite a bit. I think the Fed is confident that uh, inflation expectations aren't going to move, but uh, you know we haven't seen these sorts of inflation rates in a very long time, and I think it's you know the, the reaction of people in the in the economy could be very unpredictable. Stephen, can you talk a little bit about why inflation expectations are so important in determining the true path of inflation? Right. Well, I mean, if, if people expect inflation, then they're more willing to accept it, and they're also more willing to demand higher wages to make up for it. So, um, you know, back in the 70s, we had what economists call the wage price spiral, where every time prices went up, workers demanded more higher wages, which in turn forced inflation higher and it just kind of fed on itself. And we haven't really seen anything like that for several decades. And the Fed is confident that we're not going to see it this time. Uh, but again, I, in my mind, we're kind of in virgin territory here. We haven't had an economy like this yeah. where uh, supply is being outstripped so severely by demand in a very long time. We'll talk a little bit more about that, us being in virgin territory, because when you look at sort of the past uh, pressure, economic pressures that we've been through here, it uh, really hasn't come as much from the supply side as it has this time around. And I'm wondering if at some point that does actually start to rear its head with regards to wages and put that upward pressure that may actually cause some concern for investors. Right. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one thing that's going on right now is um, for a combination of factors and, and certainly the uh, extra unemployment benefits have been cited by a lot of folks and, and is probably an important reason. But uh, people at the lower end of the wage scale um, are very hesitant to go back to work right now. And firms are raising wages pretty significantly for those types of jobs. And it's hard to take that back. Um, and certainly many people would look at that and say, hey, that's a great thing. Uh, people are getting paid more um, and that's that's well and good. But then how does that get um, adopted in terms of how the companies tend to price? So, you know, fast food restaurants have to pay three or four extra dollars per hour for their workers. Does that mean that your dollar value meal becomes a two dollar value meal? Um, that's how inflation gets started. So that's, I think, what the Fed is going to be watching is how much pricing power do firms have um, and does it look like consumers are more willing to accept those price increases versus where we've been over the last, say, 20 years, where consumers have been very resistant uh, to those uh, sorts of price increases. So I got to say, Tom, when you take a look at what we're seeing, you do have to wonder at what point people look at this and they say, we have to look past oh. the noise and we are looking to something that is yeah. longer in its nature. And Lisa, what's so important here is Michael McKee points out, and folks, the job Mike has to look at this wall of data that comes out and he sifts through it. And he really mentions the finally decline in the savings rate. Stephen Stanley, you are acclaimed at nailing the market economy I assume you've never seen savings rates like this. Explain to our radio and TV audience why guys like you are riveted on a savings rate of 20-whatever percent down to 14-whatever percent. Well, it's important to remember that the savings rate is a flow, and the savings rate went up a lot in March because there was, as Mike said, there was this massive influx of, of rebate checks. So the savings rate goes down in April simply because income is not as high because you don't have that artificial boost from the stimulus checks, but it's still above 10%. I mean, in normal times, you know, savings rates in the mid single digits. And so what's happening is every month people are putting away more money than they normally would. 
it made sense for that to happen in the pandemic because people simply couldn't spend on everything they wanted to buy. Um, now that the economy is reopening, households have a tremendous stockpile of dry powder that they can deploy. And the question is really, does it get spent all at once or does it get meted out over time? I think it's likely to be the latter, which is why I think the consumer's going to have a lot of staying power uh, for quite some time. Well, actually, and, and this is important, and Michael McKee highlighting this, as Tom just said, that we did see that personal savings rate come down to 14.9% from 27%. It seems like people are out there spending in force. At what point, Stephen, do you adjust your expectations for GDP, for inflation, for, for activity in the economy based on the savings rate coming down so rapidly? Well, we'll see what it does once the, the impact of the stimulus checks uh, starts to, you know, to, once that abates. And May will be the first clean month that we've had in a while on that front. Um, but look, all through last year, the savings rate was still running much higher than normal. And so at some point, I would expect the savings rate should mm -hmm. go down. And if anything, it should go down to a below normal rate, right? Because right. people are, are kind of flush right now. They don't need to save. Um, they, you know, and they're probably going to want to be spending. So yeah. we're hearing all this pent up demand for travel and all the fun stuff that we haven't been able to do over the last year. So I would expect that as we get later in the year, the savings rate will actually go down dramatically. Fascinating. Stephen Stanley, thank you so much. Really interesting economic data and more to come. What's interesting into the Memorial Day weekend is the domestic debate over vaccinated and unvaccinated. That debate, no doubt, will continue into the summer. The new debate, or rekindling of the debate, is a discussion of how did this begin? Where did it come from? And Lisa, it's really, really come up in the last number of days on the lab leak theory. Yeah, that theory that was rejected initially as conspiracy theory or just hearsay is increasingly gaining some credence. The U.S. is examining uh, some intelligence that has not yet been released regarding this. And there is a question of how much this is significant and how much this could change the conversation around the coronavirus pandemic. Andrew Pekosh has the actual science behind it, which will be helpful in framing our understanding of it. Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Professor and Virology Andy, is your sense that there is plausible uh, proof behind this theory that the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, did originate in a Wuhan Chinese laboratory? Well, I think the important thing to understand here first is, is we want to differentiate where the pandemic started from versus the process that got this virus into humans. So I think it's clear that this is not a virus that has been engineered in any way by humans. Um, it seems to be a natural isolate. And we think that the way it became a human pathogen is because it went from bats into animals and then from animals into humans. And I think what the debate right now is about is that last step. Did that last step happen because of a person coming into contact with one of these intermediate animals and then launched pandemic? Or is it a situation where a laboratory was working with this under unsafe conditions, there was some sort of a lab leak and uh, that caused the pandemic? You know, working on these viruses for over 20 years, I can tell you that the, the, the safety concern, the safety precautions that have to be put in place are really quite high. Um, and so the likelihood of a lab release is really very, very, very low. However, as you've mentioned, there does seem to be some movement on the political side today and, and talk about information that hasn't been released yet, which is, mm -hmm. I think, the big question mark right now. 
Andrew Vetbill emails in. He's watching the show this morning. Good to see that the dog is watching the show. Andrew Pekos, everyone listening with pets, including Francine Lacroix, can it go the other way? If we get COVID, can we give it to our pets or, for that matter, to animals of the agricultural persuasion? Yeah, uh, excellent question. There is evidence that uh, uh, companion pets, cats and dogs, can be infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2, and that's probably a result of their owners being infected. There's not much evidence of the virus moving in the other direction. So um, so that's, I think, one good thing. When it comes to animals, I think we've seen that there are a number of animals that can be susceptible to infection. Um, we haven't seen huge outbreaks in those populations, but those are populations that we have to worry about. The mink farms in Europe and here in the U.S. were one example of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we have to pay attention to those kind of things because anytime this virus enters another host that gives it a whole new area to adapt and the virus that comes out of those hosts may or may not be better at infecting humans. Andy, it, it makes sense um, that a coronavirus that started at a market in Wuhan might have come from the coronavirus lab down the street in Wuhan. Um, and, and it's also understandable why you wouldn't want to immediately discuss that. I mean, politically, it's difficult for China and um, there's no reason to rock the boat. How important is it to scientists to find out where this virus came from? Oh, it is absolutely critically important. And that's why I think you're hearing some scientists saying, we, when we approach this issue, we want everything on the table because we don't want to rule something out for political reasons or because we don't want that to be the reason the virus emerged. Um, I'm simply saying that the critical thing here is going to be understanding how that virus went from bats into some other animal and into humans. And that's going to tell us something about the pathway in which viruses can enter the human populations, and that's going to help us prepare better for the next pandemic if we can find ways to limit that exposure. Again, if it happened through a laboratory, then that's something we also have to uh, uh, understand. But even if that was the case, it was probably adapting before that to infect humans. And so we need to go even deeper than that to understand how the ecology of this virus uh, resulted in, uh, in something that can cause such a tremendous pandemic. Dr. Pekaj, as we head into this Memorial Day weekend, a lot of people are saying if they've been vaccinated, they don't have to wear masks. They can be with other individuals without worrying about getting sick or infecting others. Is the risk of getting ill or possibly uh, fostering some sort of additional variations pretty much off the table if you have been vaccinated at this point? Uh, I would say that if you're vaccinated, you certainly are protected to a great degree. We've had some tremendous data coming out, especially over the last four to five months, that shows how good the vaccine is working at preventing severe disease, at preventing uh, symptomatic disease, and even at preventing transmission. Now, nothing is 100%. And what I really worry about is the 40 to 50% of the population that isn't vaccinated right now. We're in, we're in a situation right now in the summer that the virus is not spreading as efficiently as it did in the fall and the winter when people were inside. So I don't want people to get a false sense of how low the infection rate is because we're seeing a combination of vaccination and poor transmission conditions driving these low rates. Come mm. the fall, we may see another surge of cases, probably won't be as severe as they were last fall and winter, but we will see a surge well, of cases if we don't get more people vaccinated. Andrew, very valuable, particularly there on the beasts of surveillance. Andrew Peckhouse with John Hopkins.
Hopkins, Bloomberg School of Public Health, a professor, and of course, one of the nation's great virologists. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.